Hey, welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. I am recording this introduction outside because it is so beautiful. I know many people are sad to see summer go, and honestly, I'm one of those people in some ways, but I'm loving the cooler weather, and I'm loving being outside. It might be a little windy, but I'm sure you'll be okay. Today on the podcast, I have author Elizabeth Passarella. She wrote a book not too long ago called Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York. And I read this book and I loved it. I laughed. I cried. I've recommended this book to many people. Uh, Serena Garofolo, who is a friend of mine, she helped conduct this interview because she actually read this book as well. And my wife, Leah, she read it. They both loved it. And in fact, having Elizabeth on, despite having many authors on in the past, uh, this one somehow has made my wife feel like she looks at me different now. Like I'm cool. I'm awesome. It was a big deal that I had her on and she still can't believe it. So thank you, Elizabeth, for helping my wife see just how cool I really am. Serena, uh, as I said, does this interview with me. And so you'll hear her at the beginning and at the end, and you'll miss her in the middle because she was having some internet issues, but uh, glad she was able to join us for some of it anyway. Serena, as I said, friend of mine, also a photographer. If you need pictures taken of you and your family, just you, or of an event, then she's your gal. Check her out at Serena Rose Photo on Instagram few other things before we get to that episode it is still september which means i'm still moving for peace with preemptive love and you can help give to preemptive love and help them with their move for peace campaign they are raising money for those who have been displaced by violence or conflict or oppression and one in out of every 95 people on this planet are forced to leave their homes and so you can play a part in helping in that transition you might be asking if i give money what does this money go to well thirty dollars allows them to buy a winter survival clothing pack fifty dollars allows them to buy a food pack for a venezuelan family for one month one hundred dollars allows them to help a refugee woman start her own business and hundred and fifty dollars helps them to create a tech job for refugees and so you can give to that by uh, going to the link in the show notes or if you follow me or thinking out loud on social media then it is in the bio there move for peace just click on that you can also go to preemptivelove.org move to hear more about that I also had an opportunity to write once again for Triple X Church, and so that link is in the bio. This time I talked about how transparency and vulnerability are the true path to freedom. I truly believe Jesus' words that the truth shall set you free. And it's a lesson that I'm still learning, and uh, that choice to choose transparency and vulnerability is a difficult one, but every time I've made it, I have not regretted it. The last thing I want to let you know about before we get to this episode is that I have just booked three bonus episodes, and those episodes will be going to the patrons within the next couple of weeks. 
So over at patreon.com slash thinking out loud, they will be hearing a conversation with me and a recent Baylor law graduate, and we will be talking about the Texas abortion law, trying to make sense of what the law is and is not doing, but then also try to look at it pastorally as Christians, uh, even pro-life or pro-choice. How how can we be thinking about protecting life, both that of the unborn and protecting the quality of life of women who may be considering an abortion. On this episode, you'll hear me mention the Beatitudes Project. I actually have the founder of the Beatitudes Project, Stu G, who I will be talking to in a couple of weeks, and we will be talking all things Beatitudes. He wrote a book, Words from the Hill, that beautiful. Again, I cried a lot. Uh, The Beatitudes Project has a movie. It has small group curriculum. There's a whole album. And so he's been just steeped in the Beatitudes and his passion for the way of Jesus, this upside down kingdom that Jesus introduces with the Beatitudes, it's contagious. And so uh, the patrons will love that episode as well, I'm sure. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking with Brian Zahn, who is a pastor and author from Minnesota. His book that comes out next month is called When Everything's on Fire. And He talks about deconstruction, and so with this season, we'll be having the theme of deconstruction woven in and out of a few episodes here and there, so I thought it'd be great to have Brian on the podcast to talk about deconstruction and uh, just the insights that he has on the subject. Honestly, uh, Brian has been a pastor to me from afar uh, through his writings, both on through his books, through uh, podcasts that he's done, through even just on Twitter, through his blog. And just learning more about his story has influenced some of my journey as well. So I'm excited for that. And you can hear all of those in the months of September and October if you are a patron. If you're not a patron, then you're going to have to wait. I don't even know how long. Once all, When I'm out of content, then I will give you that content. But if you want to listen to those episodes in September or October, you can do so for as little as $2 a month. $2 a month. That's like $0.50 cents a week. It's a little more than three cents a day. Think you can afford that. And so if that content sounds interesting to you, we'll have that over at patreon.com slash thinking out loud pod. But enough of all this jibber jabber. You want Elizabeth Passarella? You've got her. Here she is. We are good, and we're recording. So okay. uh, we're here with uh, Elizabeth Passarella, uh, author of Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York. Elizabeth, we're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, good. Yeah, we're we're both in New Jersey. We're, uh, we're south of Jersey. I don't know <laughs> if that means anything to you, but in New Jersey. It means a lot to us. <laughs> it does mean a lot to us. Yes. Does that mean you're I, not, you don't consider yourself close to New York City? You're a totally different. Correct. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Right. We're Philly people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Phil, yeah. Philadelphia is probably like 20, 30 minutes from where we're at compared to whatever, three, three and a half hours to New York. So um, there's an unofficial dividing line somewhere in New Jersey. Depends who, <laughs> where you're at, where, where you ask. But I do think as like Philadelphia people, we have like the little brother syndrome when it comes to New York. Right. Um, we really want to be New York, but we never say that out loud. <laughs> it comes out in in anger and frustration. But 
Yeah, I yeah. love New York City. I when I was a kid, it was like my dream to live there. It's, I don't know so much that it's my dream to live there anymore, but I do like the city, and I'm really excited about Broadway coming back. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen. I think as someone, I I say this a little bit in the book too, but I have a really bad sense of direction, and that extends to sort of my um, knowledge about geography. I'm really bad with geography too. So I've lived in New York for 22 years now and I still don't really know exactly where everything is in terms of I get New New Hampshire and Vermont confused I put one next to the other so you know I have I, you guys will just have to school me on New Jersey geography because I definitely am not knowledgeable about any of that <laughs> well it, Philadelphia is lovely good. I've been there <laughs> yeah we I th- it is easier for me to tell people when they ask where I live and I say New Jersey they assume New York and then I'm like, just Philadelphia. Just I live in Philadelphia. That's mm-hmm. what you need to know. Yes. Um, I can see the skyline on my way into work. So it's Philadelphia. <laughs> um, so we all, in one form or another, have kids. Serena is the <laughs> nanny of three. Uh, yes. You, you Elizabeth, God are a mother. Serena. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun job. I love it. Um, I'm a father of three girls. And Elizabeth, you also have three children. So I wanted to uh, I want to just jump into the hard questions. We are forced to watch a lot of kids shows because we're around <laughs> kids a lot. So of all of the terrible shows that you've had to watch because you're a parent, what's the best one? What is your favorite kids show? This is so easy for me to answer. I love this question. It's so easy. And if you'd asked me a month ago, I'm not sure I would have had an answer, but I've discovered a new show. I might be a little late to the party, but do you guys watch Bluey? No. No? Okay. Okay. So I'll tell you about Bluey. I'll tell you about Bluey. Yes, tell us. I discovered Bluey because, number one, when I take my two older children to the orthodontist, it's always on in in the waiting room. But often the sound is off. So I was watching it. So I was familiar with the look of it, but I didn't, I wasn't really listening or paying attention to it. Then I read, I'm sure some social media God sent it to my feed, um, a Rolling Stone article that was the top 100 sitcoms of all time, all time, you guys. We're talking Seinfeld, you know, The Simpsons. I mean, big, heavy hitter sitcoms. And Bluey was on this list. And I was just sort of scanning it to see where things felt. And Bluey's on there. And I thought that that weird sort of, it's Australian. It's a bunch of dogs. It's a dog family. Every episode is seven minutes. So it's almost kind of perfect because I, I have older kids, an 11 and a nine-year-old. But then I also have a toddler who's three. So, you know, if he wants to watch one show before bed, it's a great one to do because it's short. And then we move on with our day. It is hysterical. It is so beautifully written. It's all, it's, it's, it's aspirational in the sense that you want to be these types of parents who play with their kids. It's, it's funny for parents. I laugh out loud. Um, it's tenderhearted. It's relatable. Bluey, a hundred percent. It's the greatest kids show that's out right now. And I feel like we maybe in America, maybe because it came out first in Australia, I'm not sure, but I feel now that, that people are waking up to the magic of Bluey as I start to talk to my friends about it. People are like, oh my gosh, yes, I discovered that. So that is my answer, hands down. What network is it on? It is on, well, you can get it. It's on Nick Jr. I'm pretty sure it's on Nick Jr. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. 
No, maybe it's Disney. Disney Plus, I think. Ma- right? Maybe it's on Disney Plus. Yes, you're right, Dave. It is on Disney Plus. We will search for it kind of on demand, just on right. our on our regular cable network. But yes, I think that the the seasons, the full seasons, are on Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've actually, I've. You're not the first person to recommend Bluey to me, and I, I like threw on one episode, but I. I'm going to go ahead and blame myself and say that I wasn't like fully attentive to it. Um, And it didn't grab my daughter. It didn't grab my daughter, but we're going back to it. We're going to give it a try. Go back to it. How old are your kids? Uh, Eight, three and a half and two. Okay. I feel like my older kids laugh really, really hard. Like they get the jokes. And yeah. then, and my toddler, I mean, he'll watch anything. Toddlers will watch anything. At least right, my right. toddler will watch anything. So yeah. he's just happy that the television's on. But my older kids definitely get the joke. And okay. it is, it's just, it's so smart and funny. Yeah. My oldest, she has a, she has my sense of humor. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that's a good one and a developed one, but <laughs> people may disagree. Um, but so I think she'll, she'll probably enjoy it. We'll have to get into that. Um, Serena, what, of all the shows you've been forced to watch here, what if you had to watch one, which one would you watch? So we haven't been watching a ton of TV recently because they're at school and everything. But when Tyler was little and Harper was little, we used to watch Sophia the first all the time. And I just think that is such the, the cutest show. I just loved everything about it. So Sophia the first is my favorite. Oh, we should I, have... can, I can sing that theme song for you. <laughs> this is singing podcast. Because I can see yeah, it. Yeah, do it. We're, we're not going to stop you. I, I love that show, too. <laughs> uh, I, we, maybe we should have talked about this beforehand because that's my go-to as well. Having three daughters, uh, I quickly got thrown into the princess life. And <laughs> I grew up with three brothers, so it was all brand new to me. But there, I we were lucky enough to have uh, friends of ours be parents before us. So I was warned about like Caillou. I was told steer clear of Caillou. So I know it's bad, but I can't tell you why because I've never watched it. I've been spared from the horrors of Caillou. But, um, and we are also a Disney family. I married into a Disney family, so I have no option there. Um, But Sophia the First was definitely the like, I found myself like as my daughter would wander out of the room, I'd be like staring Still at the watching TV it. Yes. Like, I need to see what happens. What? Um, yes. And it's well, got a pretty start. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say the best thing about Sophia the First is that Tim Gunn is the voice of Bailiwick. Yes. That is what I love so much. Yes. I was just going to say the cast is pretty star studded because then Wayne Brady is. Yep. Um, what's the, the rabbit? rabbit the rabbit. Yeah. The rabbit. Um, and then. Now that's, that's going to bug me. Me too. The audience, people Clover, are listening. Clover. The rabbit's name is Clover. Yes. Good job. Well done. That one point for Elizabeth. <laughs> You're in the lead so far. Uh, yeah. But, and then uh, they have some, I forget the names, but some of the actors from uh, Modern Family are voices on it as well. So yeah, Sophia the First is probably is, is my go-to. But Bluey, now we know that is the... Okay, try Bluey. Uh, we're going to try it. We're going to give it a go. Um, all right. Now, now that the tough questions are out of the way, uh, I want to get into a little bit about uh, this book, Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York. And um, I one the cover art is like captivating to me. It's like it's really pretty. And Thank you. I don't think because of the book 
because my wife hadn't seen it yet, but we actually painted a wall in our room, the green of like the book. Uh, so it, like it matches, but um, I was like drawn in immediately to it. Um, it. Your writing. I am not, I don't know that I was the target audience. I don't know that there is a target audience, but um, as a, a man, as never living in the South and having this secret disdain for New York. Uh, I don't know if this book was supposed to appeal to me, but it did. And I, I loved it. Um, I, I didn't read it quite as fast as Serena did. <laughs> well, I, I listened like, to it. So okay. yeah, it might be cheating a little. Um, yeah, that might've been cheating, but you asked for book recommendations. I was like three quarters of the way through it and told you about it. And then you finished before me. <laughs> That's actually hilarious. Of, I didn't know a, that. It was a shot to the ego a little bit. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I, I really liked about it, Elizabeth, was uh, your choice, your decision to choose vulnerability in your writing. Um, there are plenty of uh, funny stories and light stories, but you also... Um, you chose to be vulnerable, to share stories of miscarriages, some stories that may be uh, embarrassing to you and or your husband about when you were dating. Um, and you you made that choice to do that. Was that, I know you also quip about having like a superpower of making light of serious situations, which I respect that. Uh, so was it just a, it's easy for you to talk about it? Or was that a conscious decision that you were going to be vulnerable for a purpose? Well, I think it is a pretty easy decision for me. I am not embarrassed easily, clearly. <laughs> My husband is also not embarrassed easily. Uh, he read everything that I wrote, even before I sent it to my agent or my editor, he read everything. There was very little that made him bat an eye, to be totally honest. He's incredibly sort of shameless in this in the same ways that I am has a really good sense of humor very confident so yes part of it is just that's my personality I am um I am I'm an oversharer I am a, a a big talker I have a big mouth uh and I'm I'm I don't get embarrassed super easily so um so yes part of it is that I would say in terms of vulnerability you know for me there's kind of there's sort of the why and there's the how um you know why do I choose to, to share these embarrassing stories or maybe push the envelope a little bit past where a lot of people are comfortable pushing the envelope in terms of uh, sharing intimate details about my life or my family's life? I think the why for that for me, and yes, it's a conscious choice. And I think that um, because that's how you connect with people. Hmm. There's plenty out there in the world in terms of books, in terms of social media, in terms of um podcast, anything out there that can, that can show you a sort of curated or polished view of life, of parenthood, of marriage. Um, and we, we all see that. We all know that, that it's not necessarily hundred percent of the picture. We all know that, but I feel like if I can share the more ugly sides of things or the more difficult side of things or the, the traumatizing or whatever it is, not everybody is comfortable or feels safe doing that, but I do. And so if I can, uh, that is a way to say, hey, you know what, I know we're all going through this. And if I can be the one to talk about it, great. And you can relate to it and know that you're not alone um, in yelling at your kids in a certain way, or you're not alone and having doubts about your relationship or whatever it is. I think that that's important. I just think that that's how that's, that's, that invites people in. It's what makes people connect to people's stories. 
It's what uh, makes reading a book interesting. I mean, we, we, you know, I just think that that's how we form connection as human beings. So I think vulnerability is really important in that sense. And that's why it was important for me to just be really super honest about the hard things. Um, and in terms of how, because I think this is important too, um, the reason I feel like I can do that really openly and really easily is because I, because of my faith, I mean, you know, and that's oh. something we haven't really gotten into yet, but obviously that's a big yeah. part of the book is um, because I don't put all of my self-worth or importance in my great marriage or my good parenting, which doesn't exist, or my accomplishments <laughs> in my career, or whatever it is, because I have this foundation of knowing oh. that sort of where my identity lies, I can be a total screw up in all those other ways. <laughs> and it doesn't. Um, it doesn't feel too naked to me. It doesn't feel too soul bearing to me because I just feel really confident in who I am and I can be completely broken and messed up in all those other ways. And it doesn't make me feel defeated or it doesn't make me feel like I'm, um, you know, like I'm sharing too much or, or whatever. So I think that that's the, that's the how. The why is yeah. I think it's so important. The how is because, you know, because of my faith and, and who I am, and, you know, in, in Christ, I feel like I can I can share all the ugly parts and it's that's not what defines me. I think just from a, a writing standpoint, first, I think that is one of the things that made it really easy to connect with for me was that um, I'm not just getting a surface level view of who you are or your story, but you are inviting the reader into these intimate parts of your life uh, in a way that is uh, well written, but is honest, and you can tell that it it is honest. This is who you are, and that that definitely came across. And I love that idea of um, choosing vulnerability, being the one to go first, right? To to make room for for other people. And uh, I I use that expression. I'm a pastor, and so I try to. Uh, make elbow room for people that mm. often in churches, everyone is, you know, a uh, little tight lipped and tight laced and everyone has to look like they have everything in order. But as soon as someone opens that door of, Hey, I'm a screw up too. <laughs> the, <laughs> I've messed up in really big ways and not just in the past, but like currently am <laughs> an unfinished product that if I lead in that way, then people will follow that it opens the door for other people to do that. So uh, I, I appreciate that you did that. Um, and I think you're, you can tell me if this is true. Uh, you mentioned how your faith plays a part in that. And I'm sure it does. It, it offers you a foundation of who you are and uh, where your identity rests, but also because of your faith, I'm assuming these difficult uh, parts of your life, you processed, with God before publishing them in a book? Uh, yes, for the most part. You would think that I did. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not no perfect Christian, that's for sure. But um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that the whole process of writing this book, it wasn't necessarily the book that I thought I was going to write. I thought right. I would write something that, that completely left Jesus out of it. Um, I thought I would just write, I mean, I've spent a whole, career for the past 20 years working for publications and mainstream publications in New York. I've written for magazines and newspapers. None of it has been faith-based in any way. So I didn't think that I was going to write a book that actually talked about my faith. And my agent really encouraged me to bring in that part of my personality and to sort of kind of tell the whole story because it was this 
a little bit of a fish out of water story. You know, I'm the Southern Christian. I grew up in a very evangelical church and yet now I live in New York and I'm sort of living this kind of liberal New York life, but, um, but my faith is still very important to me. And so she was the one who really encouraged me to kind of tell the full story. And when I, I just felt like God opened every door really clearly um, yeah. You know, we talk about those times in our life where we really feel like, you know, God is speaking to us and leading us and that the years and years and years of my life have gone by where I haven't felt like that. I don't know what God is telling me to do. Sometimes yeah. the message is not clear. We all know that. But this was so clear. It was so clear that that he was opening the door and and making just green light after green light in terms of um the writing came easily, the selling of the book, you know, went smoothly, everything was just kind of open. So yes, I do feel like God was, was, was calling me and telling me that this was the story to tell. Um, and yes, of course, uh, some of those things that, that I write about um, happened years ago. Some things happened in my childhood. So there was a lot that I had already, you know, processed from a, from a prayer perspective, from a, uh, you know, repentance perspective. <laughs> but I got to be honest, there's a lot that I processed while I was writing and I'm still yeah. processing. I think like yeah. anger towards my kids. I mean, the pandemic has not been great for that. I'm not better at that now. I'm yeah. not more patient. Um, I am, I, that is a daily, that is a daily uh, process of, of repentance and forgiveness and in terms of dealing with anger towards my kids or yelling at my kids or reacting a certain way. So those are things that are I'm constantly processing with God right. and I'm constantly, you know, two steps forward and three steps back. So, uh, you know, some of those things I was processing and still am some of them, like I talk at the end of the book, my, my dad passed away literally right before the book was due. And I kind of processed that while I was writing it. I didn't mm, think that yeah. that was something I was going to even be writing about. And it was a surprise. Right. And I pushed my book deadline back a couple months and asked if I could have a little time to write about that. And I was processing through that while I was writing about it. So it was a mix. Um, but I would say that most of the things that I struggle with in the book uh, that I talk about really openly in terms of ways that I'm just incredibly, you know, broken and, and not, not doing great are things that I, pro that I process every day. They're things that yeah. I have to wake up every morning and ask the Holy Spirit to help me get through. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think being aware of our shortcomings certainly makes it easier to share them <laughs> because it, yeah. you need to have a self-awareness of it, but it also comes from, we probably all have those people in our lives who are over sharers, but it doesn't feel healthy at all <laughs> that they're mm -hmm. doing that because they aren't, really aware that these are shortcomings. They're just aware these are things that they want to to share. Um, but yeah, I think when we do that work, then it it makes it easier for us to be vulnerable and for that to be helpful for other people. Uh, and it it felt as reading that, that you have done, certainly done some of that work. Um, being in New York, you, uh, you talk about uh, at one point in the book, how many people say that they feel close to God, you know, at the beach or in the mountains and um, that is not necessarily untrue of you, but you talk about how even the bad, the the bad stuff, the scary stuff about living in New York, the the things that uh, most people and at times I'm sure yourself too would rather do without. But those things, the bad stuff, also it is like being close to God. What is it about um, the the messiness of life, specifically a New York life, that makes it feel like God is close? Ooh. Well, you know, I think that um, 
I think about, you know, people see God kind of like, like I said before, like you just quoted me back to me about talking about God, <laughs> seeing God in the beaches and seeing God in the mountains. You know, nature is, I think, such an such a peaceful and lovely way to sort of meet God. And it's a, it's a great way to meet God. I definitely see God sort of in nature. I think that the answer to that is twofold. Number one, I think that New York is such a beautiful place. I love the look of the buildings and the skyline. People talk about it being a concrete jungle. I find it beautiful. That's not for everybody. I certainly don't think everybody agrees with me, but I find there's a lot of beauty in New York, um, just in sort of the different neighborhoods and the color and just the architecture. So there's, so that was part of me bringing that up. Is that such a familiar thing for people to be like, oh, you know, and I just really feel like God's presence in the, at the beach. I really, really, truly feel it walking down the streets of New York just from a beauty standpoint. Um, but the the deeper answer to that question is, you know, I think that New York in a lot of ways is uncomfortable. I talk about this in the book a lot too, is that we as people, we crave comfort. And I think especially as parents too, because so much is not not up to us. And we are, we are giving, giving, giving and pouring ourselves out so much for our kids that we just want comfort. We want time alone. We want a book. We want a bath. We want a massage. We want whatever it is. We want comfort and peace. And New York does not offer a ton of that. Uh, it is, it is, it is loud. There are times where you are hauling your groceries home and you can't put them in the trunk of your minivan. You've got to carry them on your shoulders. Uh, there's lines to wait in. There's walking to do and stairs to climb in the subways. And so there are, there's just a lot of physical and sometimes emotional discomfort in New York. You are bumping up against humanity, literally people uh, who are different, people who are rude, people who smell, people who are loud or snotting on the sidewalk or whatever it is. It's just uncomfortable. And so for me, I think that I'm, I've learned um, over time to just be really grateful for that because I look at those people and I think that is so annoying. Why is that person you know, spitting or doing whatever they are. And then I have to remember that person is made in the image of God. God loves that person right there as much as he loves my children, as much as he loves me. And that is a lesson that, of course, you can learn anywhere. There are annoying people in every town and city in the United States, of course. But I do think <laughs> that in New York, because we're not really as much of a car culture because we're walking around and it's dense and you're living on top of each other in every sense of the word, that you just bump up against humanity. And you have to remember that those people are made in the image of God. You have to remember that those are your neighbors, that you got to love those people. And so I just, I just have to, I have to rely on God to get through those days and those times and that discomfort. And I think that that can feel like a burden or it can feel like a gift. And I just think that that is sort of the gift that New York has given me is the sense that you are, you are literally having your, your, your rough edges rubbed off and your prejudices filed down and all of those things kind of turned upside down because you are just constantly bumping in to uh, people who are different, people who are annoying, people who are, and you're finding beauty in those people too. So right. I think that that's just a gift that New York gives me. And I think that's where I, I really feel God's presence is him really working on me and working on my heart and showing me that he is reflected in all those different people that you're running into. Yeah, that's great stuff. I, is that something that you think just has, it's just the spirit and time that has made you see it that way? Or like, are there I don't know, are there practical like things or practices that you've done to kind of help train your brain that way? 
no, I think it's a hundred percent the work of Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do not think that I'm I'm capable or responsible for any of that. No, um, and you know I think I say this too. I obviously love New York City. I obviously wrote an entire book about how much I love New York City. The book is a love letter to the city. This is, this city is not for everybody. Not everybody yes, should yeah. live in New York City. Um, you know, you can find that kind of of interaction and that sort of community with people wherever you live. Um, so I I also think that that is. I feel very called to New York City. I feel very called to be raising my family here. So obviously God has a purpose for me here. And obviously God is going to use the very unique aspects of New York City to change my heart because he called me here. So right. God is going to use the very specific aspects of, of your small town or your farm or wherever you live to change your heart and to um, challenge you and to use the Holy Spirit to work in you. And so I think he's going to use wherever you live. He just happens to be using New York City on me because that's where he called me to be. And I love it. Yeah, I do like that. You, yeah. I like this for you. Like you said, I don't know if I like it for me, but I, <laughs> I like that in in a place like New York, you aren't afforded the same luxuries of turning away from the ugliness of life um, yeah. that in a city with that many people, you are going to bump up into things literally or figuratively that you otherwise wouldn't want to or certainly wouldn't choose to um and so i think when you are uh, forced to encounter it um it, it does open you up to the spirit doing a work there are you familiar at all with um the beatitudes project i have heard of it but i you're gonna have to refresh my memory i think it started just as like a personal journey where he spent a ton of time uh just thinking about studying the Beatitudes. And now he wrote a book uh, called Words on the Hill that like goes through each Beatitude. And um, there's, I think, a documentary that is involved with the book. And there was a whole album that he had. Um, and then there's like a small group thing. So it's this whole thing. But um, I bring it up because one of the things he says uh, as his takeaways from reading the Beatitudes is that the... Um, he kind of summarizes the Beatitudes as saying, when you're at the end of your rope is when you're closest to God. And mm -hmm. I think there is uh, an unfortunate uh, consequence to comfort. That is, we don't have to feel close to God, that mm, we, can, we can rest in our comforts. And uh, when we are uncomfortable, that is when we are closest to God. And when we see others who are in situations where they are struggling and hurting, that there is the spirit hurts for them. And so we hurt for them. Um, and we can see the beauty in it as well, because, uh, you know, it's not the things that our world says are beautiful and worthy are not all that is beautiful and worthy. Um, and so you can start to see the humanity and the image of God in others when, when you're forced to look. But I think mm. so many of us have the option of not looking. And so we don't. And so I think um, we miss out on that. We feel like we're protecting ourselves, but I think we're actually missing out on so much that, that God has for us. Yeah, that's good. And I, you know, I think that New York, and I will say this as a, New York, you can be really lazy about it in New York and still get it. You know, that proximity with people who are different from you. And when I say different, I mean like different political views, different speaking a different language from a different culture, all those things, um, just different, different energy levels, all of those things. It can be really easy to um, avoid that. And wherever you live, you kind of surround yourself with people who are like you and have the same belief systems, the same interests and all of that. In New York, you can be really 
lazy about seeking out that and still get it. So I say that as someone who tends to be lazy about a lot of things in my life. And I think maybe if left to my own devices, I probably would surround myself with people totally just like me who affirm the kind of person I am and make me feel good about myself all the time. And I can be really lazy about that in New York and really not be doing what God wants me to do in terms of reaching out to my neighbors and loving my neighbors. And it still comes because you just can't help it in New York. It's still going to just be in your face and you're still going to bump into people. And so, um, yeah, that I feel like is good for me personally, because I think left to my own devices. Yeah. I mean, all of us are going to seek out the most comfortable, safe place and New York kind of just thrusts you into it, whether you want it or not. I think in New York and in the Northeast, we, because we are thrust into so much and we see so much, uh, I think there's a uh, stereotype that we are hardened to mm-hmm. life, <laughs> that uh, we are calloused, we are cynical. Um, I know uh, for many in my life, like our love language is sarcasm. Um, yeah. And it's just, it, it's the way that we we communicate. And when you're able to bust each other's chops, that's how you know, all right, you've made it. Like these people like me. Um, but with that comes like a, can come a cynicism um, to, well, I know things are bad and they will only get worse and there is no hope. There's everything's just terrible. Um, you shared a story and this, I actually, I cried at this part and I don't know if it's where everyone cries, but it, it hit me right in the fields where you share the story of uh, the girl on the bus and worrying about your kids and if they'll have the same Southern manners that you have or not. Uh, and that, that girl on the bus who, when she got up and left, she, I don't even remember. She told you to have a good day or, or something, uh, but she was polite. And uh, that just got me because it, it was a hopeful story in the midst of a place that I don't know is known for being a hopeful place. Mm. Um, so what, what about living in New York has kind of maybe counterintuitively uh, taught you to hope has given mm. you hope for the future? You know, that is a good question. I'm not sure I am. I'm not sure I I am a super hopeful person. Mm. I agree with you. I tend to be very sarcastic. In fact, my husband and I were having a conversation this morning about not being super pleased with the way one of our children was talking to us. And I said to him, but she's mimicking the way we talk to each other. You know, she's trying to get in on the joke. She's trying to use that sarcasm. It it doesn't, it comes off as disrespectful with her, but it's because, because we have modeled that for her. Um, I tend to be very sarcastic as we, we are very, we value humor in our family. I am very cynical. Um, I can tend to have a kind of a doomsday view on things. So I would say, number one, I'm not sure I am a super hopeful person. Um, I know I'm supposed to have hope in, in Christ, but, you know, I think that, first of all, given the past year that we've had, um, New York is always a hopeful place coming back from tragedy. Uh, I lived here during 9-11, so I was here after that. Now, that was a really completely different uh, situation and in some ways easier because we could gather together to support each other and grieve and comfort each other, which we couldn't do in the past last spring when we were in the the sort of darkest days of the pandemic. Um, But 
New York is incredibly resilient. Part of that comes from arrogance. We think we are awesome and that we will always be awesome and we are going to come back to be even more awesome than we were before. So I recognize that that's part of our personality. Um, but I do think that there is a strength of character in this city and sort of uh, that that is that always there is always a little bit of hope. Um, I believe God loves cities. That gives me hope. I believe he loves cities. Do I believe that he wants every one of his followers to live in a city? Absolutely not. But I do believe he loves cities. He, he talks about cities in the Bible. We write letters, you know, Paul writes letters to cities and churches and urban areas. Uh, you know, he tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. I mean, he cares about cities and the type of influence, whether it's cultural influence or financial influence or whatever's happening in cities and the, the brightest minds and thinkers you know, maybe they don't stay here forever, but they come at some point. I do think he cares a lot about cities. Um, I think he wants uh, his people in cities. Again, not all of them. I don't ever want to think that everybody belongs in a city all the time. I think God uses you where you are. But um, but that gives me hope is that I don't, I think that, I think that God sees the potential of a place like New York um, and its people and its influence. And he wants that influence to carry his his truth out into the world. So that gives me hope. Um, but yeah, I just think coming back from the kind of year we've had coming back from, from the, the death and just the sadness and seeing different neighborhoods and communities come together in New York is really beautiful. So, um, and that's the same everywhere, you know, checking on your neighbors, caring about the people you live in close proximity with that's universal, that's everywhere. And so I think that that has been really beautiful. That is something that has really been beautiful to me to see in the past year is the way that our neighborhood, our building, even just our building comes right. together, checking on people, shopping for each other's groceries, uh, checking on the elderly people in our building was really beautiful and hopeful. And I hope that that, I hope that carries on. I think that New Yorkers were softened in the past year in terms of um, realizing we're not isolated, realizing that we are part of a community, that our actions affect other people. In New York, you can be really isolated. You can shut yourself off and just do your thing and stay in your lane and not really have to deal with other people, even in a crowded city. And in the past year, we realized that's not the case. Our actions affect other people um, living you know, on top of each other and the density that made the virus spread so much more in New York was actually what kind of healed us. Too. Right. Um, so that I think is hopeful for New York, just the the way that communities have come together. And I hope that that continues, that we don't go back maybe to our old ways of being one man shows that we tend to be as New Yorkers. Um, and, you know, my kids give me hope. <laughs> I say that I say that with a little a little tongue in cheek. But I do think, you know, talk about being hardened. People always say, oh, kids grow up so fast in New York City. They do kind of. They do. They are they are exposed to more adult situations and ideas and problems and things that maybe they encounter on the street or they encounter on the bus, or they encounter in their public school that they might not in maybe a smaller town or a more more sort of uh, protected environment. But I think that I think that's great. I have to say it doesn't bother me. I've seen my kids. I would rather my kids have those difficult conversations, whether it's about homelessness or mental illness or any of these things that sort of they bump up against in New York in the same way I do. I would rather have those conversations with them when they are young and under my roof and listen to me and trust me and think that I'm smart than with they are having them in college or encountering things for the first time in adulthood, which is what happened to me. And I'm not right there to sort of speak truth and love into their hearts or, or wrestle with those things with them. 
So I'm really thankful for that. Um, that's why I think it's such a great place to raise kids. You, you, you hit the hard stuff, but you hit it together. And so I have seen my kids really mature and grow up in the past year, just given the situations that we found ourselves in. And that really gives me hope. I think they're going to be really resilient, smart kids. I think all of our kids are having gone through this past year, but yeah, um, yeah that gives me hope too. Yeah, no, that that's great. I think uh, one of the threads I kind of saw in, in that answer is community that as we mm-hmm. are around other people that will inevitably make us more hopeful. Um, and I think even, so I'm in the suburbs here, uh, and my wife, I think she would freely admit that she is more fearful than I am. And, um, so, you know, every night before we go to bed, it's make sure the doors are locked and did you close the garage and, and all of that. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm tired. I just want to go to bed. (laughs) Um, but over the last year we have also, we've spent a lot more time outside because we're more spaced out. So we could, we couldn't go to stores or movies or malls or even church for a while, but we could be outside. And so I, we got to see our neighbors more than we have in the previous seven years (laughs) that we've lived there. And, um, we got to know them more and my wife felt in her fear starting to reside because Mm. it's not someone might come into our house. It's, Oh, I know Joe and Lisa and I know Carl and I know like I know the people who are around us. And so I I feel better. And I think that like just being in relationship with the people around you uh, offers up a level of hope. It, it it starts to beat against cynicism because now you're not talking about ideas. You're talking about people who you actually know. Uh, and so I think we and that, like you said, can happen anywhere. Obviously, there are there is, I guess, more opportunity for community in a big city, but there's, it's also easier to hide in a big city. Um, and so wherever you are, you can find community. And I think doing that will help us be more hopeful. And I, I like you, um, I default to cynicism and sarcasm, and that's easy for me, but I've, I really have felt convicted over the last couple of years, God really saying, that's not who I, I am. That's not who I've made you to be, that there is a hope that we, we can, as the world grows more cynical, that if God's people can be hopeful, then that will be an attractive thing. So I'm trying to be more hopeful. I'm trying to look for it wherever I can find it. Your, your story, Elizabeth, is very uniquely yours. You, uh, a Southern girl moved up to New York and disappointed your family. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, you, you, at one point you say in so many words that, uh, as you, your political affiliation started to change and the way that you think and saw the world change that your mom, blamed living in New York and blamed your husband and you were like, yeah, she's not wrong about that. (laughs) And, And that got me thinking that, you know, I think I would assume you're happy with who you are and who you are becoming, um, happy with the, the way life has taken you, but not everyone has gone that way. And as Christians, we're all called to become more like Christ, but we're all very much influenced by our environments and we all have different environments that are going to lead us down different paths. So I guess the question is, how do we reconcile that, that 
we all have a similar call on our lives to be like Christ, but we're going to be influenced by our environments and our environments are necessarily going to be different. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think the, I mean, that is a great question. I think we are, I mean, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. The idea that my path is, is in any way more right or more righteous <laughs> is of course crazy. Um, you know, we've got, we, we are, we are part of a global family of believers who people are being influenced by their environments in different continents and different cultures and countries and all over the world. And God is shaping us to be more like him in all of those cultures and all of those countries all over the world. So I think number one, I think you just take a step back and think we are a very diverse body of believers for starters. The body of Christ is, he's going to use us all in different ways. Um, you know, I just, I think that, sin, well, okay, I'll just say this. Sin is pretty universal. I mean, I think that, yes, my environment, my moving to New York was really formative in sort of who I became. Meeting my husband obviously is, is influenced, um, certain things about my life. But when you say, you know, you mentioned like my political affiliations changed, that has nothing to do with my faith. I mean, it changed who I am. It maybe changed how I look at the world, but there should be Christians in both political parties. There should be Christians in all different sort of, you know, places in the country and cities and rural environments. So I think all of the changes that kind of happened for me moving to New York might have made me look at my faith differently, but it didn't really change the foundation of my faith. And I think that um, if anything, moving to New York, marrying whom I married, having children, really just revealed certain sins in my heart and God transforming and redeeming those things through Jesus to make me more like Jesus. And those sins are universal, the sins of pride, the sins of you know, control, thinking you control things, the sense of being indifferent to my neighbors or people in need. I mean, those are universal. And so I think that's kind of the beauty of what's been fun about the book coming out is that I hear from people who live in completely different environments than I do, don't live anywhere near a big city, never even been to New York, but they can relate to it because sin is universal. So I think that our environments really are just digging up and unearthing those sins in our hearts. And, um, and that can happen through, you know, encountering people on the streets of New York and that can happen through living in a totally different place. So I think that that's, you know, my, my environment and the things that I have, I have come up against since living, you know, living in New York and marrying a New Yorker is really just God has revealed. I talk about this a lot when I'm talking about the beginning of my relationship with my husband, um, he was not what I thought I was going to marry. He was not a Southern guy who had grown up going to discipleship group and leading men's Bible studies and all of these things. He grew up, he was Catholic. He grew up in New York City. Um, and I just kept thinking I wanted to change him and I wanted him to be different. I wanted his faith to be exactly like my faith. I wanted him to pray with the same jargon that I used when I prayed out loud. I wanted him to read the same books I read. And over time, we, we have, you know, God changed me, not him. And that was the biggest transformation in my marriage was 
God telling me, I'm changing you. I'm not changing him. It's not your job to change him. I will, I will work on his heart. And in the meantime, um, let's look inside your own. <laughs> like you've got a lot of issues you need to deal with. You know, when I started working on myself was when my marriage, you know, when my marriage blossomed really and became sort of better than I ever thought it could be because I stopped trying to change him and I let God change me. Um, and so I think that's the most important thing is your environment really it's just, it's just the tools that God is using to reveal the unseen in your heart. Um, you know, and I also, I also think, so I think, yeah, I mean, sin is, is, you know, universal. And I also just think that, you know, you say like, we're all being called to be like Jesus. Yes. Well, what's being called to be like Jesus? It's loving your neighbors. It's sort of looking out for the poor and the marginalized. It's, it's, it's preaching the truth, obeying the father, you know, loving people around you. I mean, that can be done anywhere. So I think if that's what God is moving us towards, your neighbors are your kids, your neighbors are your spouse, your neighbors are your actual neighbors, your neighbors are the people at the grocery store. So, you know, I just don't think that your environment really matters. Your environment's just a, a tool that God is going to use to, to, to bring you closer to him, to make you rely on him and to sort of help you love your neighbors. Did that answer your question? I feel like that was a very roundabout <laughs> answer to a very good question, but no, I, I think it, that is a great answer. And I think it, it is true that more than we need a particular environment, we need eyes to see what mm -hmm. God is showing us. Um, and you know, uh, James calls the Bible a mirror. And, and I think it is that it kind of shows us our own flaws, but, uh, I think, as you articulated there, our environment is also a mirror. Um, and I think being a parent is a mirror. Being a spouse is a mirror. Being an yeah. employee is a mirror. That being a friend is a mirror. That as you are in relationship with other people and uh, bumping up into those things in your environment, if you have eyes to see, you're going to see where you're flawed. And I think whether it's defense mechanisms or lack of self-awareness, we often, we just see where others are flawed. Um, but yeah, I think when we are willing to turn that mirror on ourselves and, and start to do that work, um, it, we become better. And then the, the flaws of others, we care less about. Uh, mm. I, I recently finished a book um, called Winsome Conviction, uh, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And uh, one of the things that they mention is that the diversity in of the church is a feature not a bug that we're mm, supposed to be yeah. different sure that we're we're, we're supposed mm. to like you you said elizabeth that uh there should be christians in both or all political parties and that blows the mind of some people <laughs> that you could be a christian and a democrat or you could be a christian and a republican that i've heard from both sides over the last couple of years well how could you be a christian and and I'm like, well, I don't know. Ask that person who just asked the same thing about you and maybe you guys will figure it out. But that the, this diversity of opinion, this diversity of environment, of uh, belief, I think even theological beliefs, like mm -hmm. it's a feature, not a bug that we are created to live well together in the midst of diversity rather than hoping everyone is like me, that everyone becomes like me. Um, and that is that's a hard pill to swallow, I think, because I believe the things I believe because I think they're right. Yeah. And so when, yeah. when, when someone else believes something else, I'm like, oh, wait, what? 
and there there can be something in me that's like are you telling me i'm wrong and then i just want to get defensive or uh in attack mode but i think to sit in that diversity and to allow it to be a mirror and even if we don't change our minds i think just being able to hold the things that we believe a little a little more open-handedly uh and with a little bit more grace to those who disagree um yeah it's yeah. hard i don't i don't envy your position as a pastor because i feel like it has been really hard the past few years on on pastors i know because i have some who are who are dear friends and it has been yeah really hard that people think especially in the church they're just black and white and there is it's not i mean Mm -hmm. there are theological issues that are black and white and then there's there's issues that aren't primary concerns that are sort of third or fourth or fifth down the line and especially when it comes to politics you know um that 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 those are not those are not our first first issues those should be down the line in terms of we should we should be united in some things so that we can be divided in the other things and still respect and love each other and it is just really hard yeah it is hard and it is a challenge but i think like you said about uh seeing the uh the potential of a city like new york uh, i see the potential of christians who disagree being united under the name of Christ, the potential of that to a world that so easily isolates and divides into interests and uh, political tribes and whatever else. If the church can actually be the diverse body that we're called to be, then I think I see the potential of that. And it is hard, but that potential (laughs) makes it worth it to to chase after. well, Elizabeth, I think we've taken enough of your time. I uh, I appreciate it so much. I um, do you have a, a preferred way for people to buy this book, or just buy it? However, you can just get it? buy it. However, no, it's it's wherever you can get books. If there's an independent bookstore you love in your town, I love supporting those. And if they don't have it, they can certainly order it, and it'll be there in a couple of days. But um, yes, and of course, it's it's at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and Books a Million and all those places too. But, um, but yeah, this has been really fun. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us, snobby New Yorker, you, uh, <laughs> you South New Jersey <laughs> friends. Um, it's, uh, it was really fun. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys.